Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My guest on today's show has been screaming obscenities at Larry David for more than two decades. David, what the fuck do you think you're doing getting my kid drunk? Drunk? What, what, what are you talking about? She's slurring her words. She's bumping into things. She stinks like a fucking wino. Oh, I poured some of your... I had poured some wine. Oh, she must have accidentally, a seven-year-old kid, drank some wine. It was her, the glasses got... Do I look like a fucking idiot that I'm going to believe you? You got her drunk and you stole the fucking dog, all right? No, she, she told me I could have the dog. She told you you could take the dog after you got her all fucked up on alcohol, all liquored up. I thought she had a speech impediment. You've known the kid since she was born, and she suddenly develops a speech impediment? That's what was so puzzling oh, to me. Oh, listen, you four-eyed fuck. You stole the dog. She's at home hysterical that her dog is gone. I don't know what you did to him. Maybe you brought him for some, like, animal testing or something. You sicko fucko asshole. Get me the fucking dog! This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the great Susie Essman dressing down Larry David all the way back in season three of Curb Your Enthusiasm. 20 years later, the show is in its 11th season on HBO, and she hasn't let up yet. Before she became Susie Green on Curb, Susie Essman was a formidable stand-up comedian in her own right. That's how she met Larry David way back before the Seinfeld days in New York's Catch a Rising Star Comedy Club. On this week's show, we get into all of it, from her first impressions of Larry to what it's been like to play this heightened version of herself on screen for a full third of her life. And just for fun, we also talk about roasting the hell out of Donald Trump in 2004 and my other favorite performance of hers as Alana's mom on Broad City. All right, brace yourselves. Here's me with Susie Essman. All right. Well, it's so great to to meet you and to be doing this. Um, I've just been such a big fan of yours for so long now. Um, and it's Thank so you, great Matt. to have it's so great <laughs> to have Kerber enthusiasm back in in our lives as well. Um, it always is. welcome. Um, so it's uh, I've really been enjoying uh, every week. And we're talking uh, the the morning after the episode aired, where uh, Susie embroiders the KKK robe. So that was a that was a particularly fun one. That was a great episode. That, that to me was a classic curb. <laughs> it really was. It was a great, like everything comes together at the end episode. Because mm-hmm. you're waiting to see how, how the watermelon's going to play in and the robe's going to play in. And <laughs> Well, that's the genius of Larry and Jeff Schaefer. I mean, the way these two figure out the plot outlines 
and weave everything. And they, they've done it with the whole season. I mean, you'll see in episode 10 how every storyline comes together in episode 10. Amazing. So they do it within, within an episode and then within, a, within a, the arc of a season. It's incredible what, how they do it. I don't even know how they get there. It's transcendent to me. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the season premiere was particularly great, I think. Um, and it was really fun to see Albert Brooks in the show uh-huh. um, to get him in, um, especially because it felt like kind of a, even though it wasn't mentioned, it felt like a kind of tribute to, to his brother, Bob Einstein, right? Yes, except that he played Albert Brooks. He didn't play Albert Funkhauser. <laughs> right, right, right. But it was, but just to have him there and, and uh, sort of to have him, it was helped us remember Bob as well. I we think. all miss Bob every day. Yeah, he was he's was just so so funny on the show and and just such a legend. So funny and so singular and you know, you can't replace that kind of comedic voice. It it it's completely original and I mean, you could get other people in there and Vince Vaughn I think has been terrific as Freddie Funkhauser replacing some storyline things, but it there's only one Bobby. <laughs> yes, yes. Um what was it like working with Albert Brooks? Had you uh did you know him before this or uh, I, I didn't. I had met him a few times. I think the first time I met him was at the Shiva for Bob, I think, actually. It was fun. It was it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I get to work with people that I've spent my entire lifetime admiring. So it's it's kind of a treat. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe Albert was going to be kind of like become a regular on the show the way he was introduced. Does he come back at all? Or was that a one time? Uh, no, it was a one time one-time thing. One time yeah. guest star. What did you do? Oh, what did you do? What did I do? You plopped down on the couch. You didn't plop. You plop. You are so fucking skinny. Your arms can't even hold a fucking oh, glass. Oh, get out of here, skinny. Puny, you, puny, You plopped puny. down. You don't even know how to sit on a couch. I didn't plop. Did she plop? Oh, like I'm going to say. Did she plop? I'm not taking sides on this. Oh, my God. What happened? The couch is ruined. What in the world? He was unsteady in his she hand. She plopped and it down just... on the couch and it spilled. It's going to stain. You it's know gonna what? Stay. We'll, we'll pay for it. What? Excuse we'll... me. Is it, uh, no, we. You'll pay for no, it. No, no. I didn't we'll do a fucking in. thing. You're completely responsible for that stage. Hey, I, I got a great idea. Why don't you two start a GoFundMe page? Oh, fuck you, Albert. Fuck me? Yeah. All right, I'm going with plopped. <sighs> yeah, he's pretty elusive, so it's uh, it was pretty impressive that you guys got him for, for one episode. <laughs> You're now 20 plus years into doing this show. I mean, which is kind of insane. Crazy. Did you ever imagine when it started that you would still be doing this, you know, 22 no, years later? I didn't even know we were going to do season two. I mean, we it was it was so I, I didn't have a contract. I was a day player for several seasons. I was a day player. I never every season, Larry would say, that's it. I'm done. I'm not coming back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, clearly that wasn't the case. He did stop for six years after episode season eight. Uh, no, I, I, never in my wildest imagination would I have thought then that 21 years later, we'd be still working and doing this. <laughs> I'm thrilled with it. I'm happy about that. But I never thought this was going to last or I never knew. Not only did I not know if we were going to come back, I didn't know if I was even going to be in it. You know, season two, I was only in two episodes. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. They were great ones. It was the doll and, uh, uh, Thor. Um, but uh, yeah, I never knew if I was coming back. I, it was just very, um, hit or miss touch and go. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty unique experience to play a character over this many years. Um, you know, not that many people can say that they've done it. Is it, is that, what is that like for you to kind of 
you know, live with this person who's maybe has some similarities to you, but not is not you over so much time. We all started out old, so it's not like we've aged out <laughs> of our characters. You know, I mean, it, it, there's no there's no age issue with any of our characters. I don't think so. So it, we weren't like beautiful people ingenues that were like running <laughs> around in bikinis. So it's not like we can't do that anymore. You know, to place, I remember, I remember after season eight, when Larry called me and he said, that's it, we're done. And he was very definitive about it. And he meant it at the time. And we were done for six years. And I remember going into a, a depression about not being, not being this character anymore, not putting on those crazy outfits anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I really missed her. I really missed playing her and being her because I have so much fun being her because I get to channel all that anger and all that, that, that Susie greenness that that's not me. That is so much fun to play. So I'm not tired of playing her. Uh, they keep on giving me new things. Jeff and Larry keep on coming up with new fun things for me to do. Uh, if he wants to do season 12, 13, 14, I'm on board. Yeah, yeah. I read somewhere that you actually, in the audition, or in some in the process at the very beginning, you actually called uh, Jeff Garland a fat fuck in the in the very first time you uh, you acted with him. Is that true? That, well, no, that's not true. First of all, I did an audition. Larry just called me and okay. gave me the part. We knew each other from way back in our stand-up years, and I met him at Catch a Rising Star and. I don't know, 1985, 1986, something like that. And he was a comic and I was a comic. And, uh, you know, Jeff was a comic. Jeff, what I think Jeff came to New York later in the late 80s. And I met him then. So we all knew each other. He gave me the part after seeing me on a roast of Jerry Stiller that was on Comedy Central, where, you know, on roast, you got to be really blue. It's, it's required. <laughs> And I was, and my act was always blue anyway. And I think that I hadn't seen him for 10 years because he had moved to LA to do Seinfeld. And um, it was like, you know, a light bulb moment. He was like, oh, Susie, she's the perfect one to play Jeff's wife. And he just called me and gave me the job. But it was, you know, it was no budget, no money. I mean, it was so low budget in the beginning. We didn't even have trailers. We didn't even have a makeup trailer. Everything was just like on location and, you know, we didn't even have porta potties for the crew. <laughs> it was all just kind of like, I got a barn, let's put on a show kind of a feeling. In the first season, there was an episode called The Wire mm -hmm. where yep. Jeff brings a fresh air fund kid into our house and the kid robs us blind. And it was that episode why Larry wanted to hire me particularly for the part. And in the show, the only direction that, that uh, Larry gave me for that scene was, I want you to rip Jeff a new asshole which, you know, I, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. I knew that that would be fun. And I'm screaming at Jeff and yelling and cursing. It was like, I want you to like really go with the language. And so I did. And, you know, every fuck this, that, and the other thing. And then he keeps on pulling me aside. Larry keeps pulling me aside and says, go further, go further. And I thought I was going pretty far. And finally he pulls me aside and he says, make fun of Jeff's fat. And I said, I don't want to do that, Larry, because I, I, that's not my comedy. I don't make fun of the way people look and things they can't change about themselves. And it's just not, I, I feel like that's kind of low and it's not a place that I like to go. And he's like, just do it, just do it. It's going to be funny. He knows you're only acting, just do it. And that was the first time I called him a fat fuck. <laughs> and, and that was it, like, then the genie was out of the bottle, yeah, you know? then it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think most people know by now that that Curb is not scripted, that it's you are given these scenarios and then you kind of have to just... Uh, you know, improvise. Did that take a while for you to get used to, or was it pretty easy right off the bat to do that style? Like a fish to water, Matt. <laughs> I just took to it. I'm a comic. And so, and, 
and I, I am the kind of comic that improvises a lot on stage. Not all comics do. Some comics have their, you know, yeah, very tightly. Yeah. I never, I always know what the first line I'm going to say. And beyond that, it was a free for all. Um, not that I don't do material. I do, but I never do it in the right, the same order. And I'm always playing with the audience. So for me, it was really easy. Once I figured out who the character was and what our relationships were, which was right away, that was set up in that same episode, The Wire, the, the antagonism, you know, me dealing with these two buffoons. Um, <laughs> and, and then, no, it was, it's always been really easy and a joy for me. I mean, I love it. I just love working that way because for two reasons. One, I don't have to memorize lines, which I hate to do. Yeah, that and two, great. I'm writing, I, I, I'm a part of the creative process. I'm not just given something to say and have to figure out some acting thing of my motivation and interpretation and all that acting, you know, lingo. I'm actually writing it in the moment. And, and you have to really, when you're improvising, improvising is all about, well, you're an interviewer. So you, you know about this. It's all about talking and listening and listening is the most important thing. You know, you have to listen. Is there a time that you could remember where you, you know, where something came out of listening in a way that you, that surprised you or, or sort of a choice that you made that was based on something that the, that the other actor was doing that really like sort oh, of exemplifies this? All the time. I mean, every, every scene, I mean, every scene, I'm trying to think of something from last night's episode. I never know what I'm going to say ahead of time ever. So in every scene, something Larry will say will trigger something that I'll say. Mm -hmm. I could imagine that not, you know, that the guest stars that come on, not everyone is used to working in this way. And are there people that you've worked with who either were particularly good at it in a surprising way or struggled with it in a surprising way? Larry hires a lot of stand-ups who are generally good at improvising and, and improv actors too. I mean, Cheryl is from the groundlings. Cheryl's not a standup. She's yeah, from the groundlings. Great, yeah. We've had so many people on this podcast who are, you know, either come up from the sketch and improv world who, who have populated the show over the years. So th those people, they, they know what they're doing and they know how to improvise. Uh, but then there are actors, you know, real actors who come on and some are fantastic and some have trouble with it. Um, John Hamm, perfect example, because he, he was so funny in, in episode one, great improviser, you know, really, but a, he's a real actor, John Hamm, you know, but I mean, also, a, also a big comedy fan. So maybe he's, he's picked correct, up some things correct. from, uh... but, but he, I mean, he was just a natural improviser, just a terrific natural improviser. Um, you know, I remember when Bancroft, that was way back in the producers season, she did not want to improvise. She asked Larry to please Tell her what to say. Yeah, well, she's Anne Bancroft. She could, she could get away with that. <laughs> but what's ironic is she's married, was, I mean, she's no longer, was married to one of the great improvisers of all time, yeah, you know, Mel in Brooks. Mel. She didn't, it didn't come naturally to her as an actress. There were other people, but I don't want to mention their names, but she's dead, so I can mention her. <laughs> Larry says that the majority of times, you know, it, I don't know the percentage, what he said, maybe 97, 98% of the time, the actors, us guys who he hires, come up with something better than he ever could have written. Two, three percent of the time he wishes he could have written it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, Susie storyline over the many years that you think about as sort of like the quintessential Susie uh, moment? Well, there's so many. I mean, my favorite episode has always been The Doll from season two for a few reasons. One, I just think it's one of the most perfectly crafted half hours of comedy ever written. 
and that's really when when the Susie the Susie Green persona really got established in season two. You know, you really see that these two are living in fear of her, <laughs> and that's the first time the spaghetti western music came up uh, as my kind of theme song. And so, so that's always you know been near and dear to my heart. The doll. Where's the head? I know you took the doll's head. Where is it? Where's the fucking head? I, I don't know. The kid is home, hysterical, because her doll, Judy, has been decapitated. Because you two sickos took the head for God knows what reason. Some voodoo shit you're doing. Where is it? Stop scratching your balls and tell me where it is. All right, just get me the fucking head, all right? Get me the fucking head, all right? Both of you, because I've had it, you four-eyed fuck and you fat piece of shit. Get me the head! Is there, has there ever been anything that you've had to do on the show or that's been on the show that actually made you uncomfortable? Because it does push the envelope in so many different ways and, you know, even including... The episode we were talking about from last night with the uh, with the you know KKK robe and the the hate group and all that. Um, is there anything that that you've been asked to do where you said I don't know about this? This might be uh, too much. You know, I, I really trust Larry, and I really trust his sensibility. So no, sometimes I'll read an outline and and that stuff with me, but I'll think, oh God, is this going too far? If it's funny, you, you forgive a lot of things. So no, I, I completely trust Larry and, and Jeff Schaefer. And, and their sensibility. And we're so on the same wavelength with so many things that I, I have no problem with whatever they ask me to do. I'm surprised sometimes. Like I'll read an outline and be like, oh, I guess now I have to, you know, learn sign language <laughs> yeah. or I have to, you know, like whatever. There's always things, oh, I guess this year I have to, you know, uh, learn how to sew or, you know, whatever it is. I didn't have to learn how to sew. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I always feel like Curb is one of those shows that's kind of grandfathered in, in terms of what you yes. can get away with. Um, you know, especially these shows that have been on for so long, you know, people talk about that with South Park or, you know, some of these shows that if it came well, the out today. correctness you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I wonder about that. I mean, I, I think that, and I've said this before, I think that Larry is so politically incorrect that he's correct, you know, um, and and he's got the last laugh. I mean, the laugh is always on him in, in that sense. Um, and he's an equal opportunity offender. He offends everybody, every ethnicity, every gender, every yeah. whatever. And, and mostly himself, probably. Yeah, exactly. But I do wonder, and I, I don't know, we have no way of knowing if it aired for the first time today, how it would be received. I don't know. Yeah, I think people. Think? I, I think people forgive things that have been on for so long and sort of say, "Well, that's just that that you know we we've accepted it and it's been you know to turn on it now would seem kind of ridiculous to say all of a sudden you know, you say, so, it, say so it's much offensive. of that stuff is intent also you know and, and I know Larry's intent and and I know how pure his intent is you know and and what a let what an old lefty he is also yeah. That was I, I thought it was the the question of intent was really funny around the um the episode with the uh, where he's wearing the MAGA hat uh you know around town and then yes. of course uh, Trump himself decided to take it totally out of context and tweet a clip of it um you know sort of implying not, not that, it was, that it was supporting that it was being him used as a as a repellent yeah. yeah he really didn't understand the intent of that one but you know well, he understands nothing about anything. Yeah, right. um, the, the, but the, when you think about that, that episode, 
what's so interesting, what Larry does in that episode is uh, clearly he's using the MAGA hat as a repellent, but he's at the same time uh, showing the the uh, the small mindedness of the left at the same time. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it's so complicated how he does it, because it's not just the anti MAGA. It's also showing these the knee jerk reaction that people have to it and why we're in this polarized place we are for both from both ends right now. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, that you started you met Larry way back, um, you know, sort of in the mid 80s at, at Catch a Rising Star. You have this very interesting relationship with him on the show where you are able to sort of scream at each other and, you know, and be furious with each other. But then moments later, you're sort of back on friendly terms. Right. And I know you've kind of described it as like a sibling type relationship. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that in, in terms of being the, the relationship that Susie and Larry have on screen? And does it is there any part of it that mirrors your real life relationship with him? No, I, I, our real life relationship is I don't think we've ever had a fight ever. Um, we get along, we have a really close relationship and we are very close friends and get along really well and understand each other really well. Um, and have, you know, I I mean, the key to under, the the key to getting along well with Larry is to have really good boundaries. (laughs) I understand Larry and, and Larry understands me. And so, no, we, but one of the reasons we can speak to each other in that despicable way is because we know we're just playing. You know, we're just playing. We're not, it, there's, there's nothing real about it at all. Yeah. But I love that there's also this sort of like real close loving relationship between Susie and Larry on screen too, where they, they they have a lot in common in a lot of ways and they do sometimes, you know, sort of see eye to eye on things in That's surprising true. ways, especially That's I feel true. like in these later seasons, they've just, because they've there's been so much time together. Yeah. And their family. I mean, you know, he, he, I think of that episode last night, he says, uh, you know, I, uh, sorry to drop in. I'm like, you always drop in. Yeah. yeah, It's like, exactly. He's the Harry Von Zell who you probably don't even know what (laughs) that is. That was from the Burns and Allen show, the neighbor who always just dropped in. He's like, you know, he's a part. That was one of the things, you know, just to go back about, about, uh, Bob losing Bob. It's this little family that we have. You know, and we just accept one another on screen. We just all, it's this, it's family. And when you lose a member of your family like that, it, it was hard. Um, what, going back to those early days where you, when you met Larry, um, what were your, what were your first impressions of him as a uh, comedian um, in, in those, in those early days? Oh, well, he was, he, he was brilliant as a comedian. I mean, his material was like nobody else's material. You know, I mean, he would, bits he would come up with about, Oh God, you know, about being the next door neighbor of Jonas Salk's mother. <laughs> like, like he's crazy. <laughs> or oh, one of my favorites of his was, you know, when you when you're in the old west and they come asking you to join the posse. You know, I mean he would come up with these scenarios that were these short stories, really. You know, they were just these short, short they they were so well fleshed out. Um, but you know, Larry, um, we would all watch him because he was just so brilliantly funny. All the comedians would go in the room and we would also go in the room to watch him because you just never knew what he was going to do. I mean, he would just look at an audience. If, if one person was looking at their watch and everybody else was laughing, he would get annoyed and storm off the stage. You know, he was just volatile kinda, and fun to watch. kind of legendary for those for those moments yeah, exactly. where he would get so he frustrated. Was always, but, you know, you always want, I remember once in the very beginning, Somebody said that Larry had been watching me do, do a set and 
there was one of my bits that he thought was really great. And that was like a lot, meant a lot to me that Larry thought I wrote a really great bit, you know, that way back in the early years that you wanted his approval, you know, were you, uh, he didn't give it, he didn't give (laughs) it, you know, he was very judicious in how he gave his approval. So were you, so you weren't surprised by the success of, of Seinfeld because you knew how brilliant he was or was that, did that come as a surprise that it, that it sort of took off the way it did? You know, I, I, I think the success of Seinfeld was surprising in a sense, you know, that it was this very New York, very Jewish show um, that seemed that not that it was successful, but that it was so successful. Yeah. You know, it was like the the most successful show in the history of television or something like that. So I I think that was a little surprising, but not really when you really take it up. It was funny. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 undeniable, right? It's, I mean, but it is, it's, I've always thought about that too, how it's so specific New York Jewish humor that somehow it just appealed to everybody. But then again, you know, the history of humor in this country is so specific New York Jewish humor. <laughs> right. So maybe that's just the rhythms people were used to. I was curious if there was ever sort of an alternate universe where you could have uh, played Elaine on the show. Was that ever, uh, did you ever I did actually you audition? auditioned for Elaine. I did, did audition for I Elaine. I had a feeling. Yes. <laughs> I did audition for Elaine. I remember uh, Larry wasn't there, but uh, Jerry was. Um, but you know, I, I really think that Julia was the right person for that part. Yeah, she's I mean, pretty Julia good. Was, yeah, Julia was so <laughs> brilliant in that part, and the, the chemistry of everybody. I never, after I saw Julia, I never uh, once had any regret for not getting that part. Did you audition for a lot of sitcoms during those years? Yeah, yeah. Is that a strange uh, world to be in? Those sort of like competing for those roles on sitcoms yeah. as, as in the, yeah, in the it's, comedy it's world. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> you didn't Auditioning like it. <laughs> and uh, it's horrible. Um, listen, this job, I, I was, first of all, not only has it lasted for 21 years, I was given the part. I yeah, never you didn't had even audition. have to audition. And there's such a, oh, I mean, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I feel so incredibly grateful that I'm on a show that I would watch because I could have gotten a part on some crappy, you know, ABC <laughs> sitcom or whatever. And a lot of those shows just limp along for seven mm-hmm. and you got to sign a six, seven year contract. Yeah. And then you're stuck. And yeah. I would have made a lot of money and that would have been nice, but I wouldn't have been doing anything that I was proud of or that I, you know, could, could tout in this way. And to be on a show that I think I personally think might be just way up there in the funniest show in the history of television with, I mean, there's a few others, but I think it's up there in in the, in the running. That's like, Oh God. I mean, I couldn't ask for anything better. Coming up, Susie reveals the real life inspiration for her character on curb and tells us what it really felt like to mock Donald Trump to his face at the Friars club roast in 2004. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our conversations with Susie's Curb Your Enthusiasm co-stars like Jeff Garland, J.B. Smoove, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Susie Essman. I was watching some of your some clips of your stand up from from back in the day, which I was really really enjoying. Um, and it struck me that you you imitate your mother on stage a lot yeah. in, in those years. And there was I I noticed some some similarities between Susie Green and the imitation of your mother. Did you think about that at all? How Susie that is, is very, kind of a, very very perceptive. Matt. <laughs> so Susie is nobody comes from has ever come up with that before. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's definitely parts of my mother and Susie Green. Absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. How did, how did that kind of uh, manifest? Did you did you originally think of it that way, or did that evolve over you know, time? No, or? it was unconscious. It was, but, but after a while, when I looked at it, I I did notice that 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 was there. But yes, it was unconscious. <laughs> it, definitely unconscious. My mother, you know, she used to um, actually. Today is the four year anniversary of her death. She died four years ago today on the November fifteenth. Um, but she used to see, watch my act and she used to say, um, th- that's not me that you're doing. I know that's not me. She thought I was making up this. Game. It was totally her. Yeah. It was completely <laughs> she, her. she couldn't see it. <laughs> no, she couldn't see. It. I, I changed the, the voice a little bit. You know, I just got, you always want to protect the guilty, but, um, yeah, it was totally her. My mother, you know, my mother lives for coincidence. It's her whole reason for being in this world, to find small world stories wherever she is, you know? Like, she was very happy I was coming down here because my grandmother used to live here. I said, you're going to Miami Beach, and Grandma used to live in Miami Beach. Oh, my God. Ah, oh, is that a small world? Oh, is that something? Ah, ah, ah. It's funny. I was looking at you. Uh, I know you sort of came up and were good friends with uh, Joy Behar. Uh, yeah, back still. In the day. She's my bestie. Yeah. Um, and I was in- it's interesting just thinking about how she's been doing The View about as long as you've been doing Curb, right? You both kind yeah. of got well, these she jobs. Started, that have lasted, 25 uh, years. So she started, okay. we started in 2000. I think she started in 1997 or 1998. She started The View. Yeah. But she kind yes. of, you kind of both have landed these jobs that have become pretty uh, powerful uh, positions in, in the media. I, uh, y- Yes, it's true. It's, it's great. You know, it's, and it's great because we both started, well, Larry too. I mean, we all started out so poor, you know, so, you know, struggling. I mean, when I first met Joy, she was a single mother. She lived in a one bedroom apartment where she slept on the couch and her daughter had, you know, like, and she drove this old beat up Monte Carlo. And Larry lived in a studio apartment uh, in Manhattan Plaza on 43rd street and 10th Avenue. And, um, you know, I, I, we were just, we were all struggling. We used to make $7 a night camp fare, they used to call it. Yeah. At these clubs <laughs> that we used to run around working. And we were all struggling. Larry tells stories about how he used to walk around the city looking for spots in case he ever became homeless. 
that would be a good place to live. Like this place has a great with some heat coming up, you know, that would be a good place to live. We were all really struggling. So it's kind of nice that we're all uh, doing quite well. <laughs> do you uh, do you follow all of the, uh, the the drama at The View or do you think it's kind of manufactured or how do you do you uh, do you talk um, to Joy no, it's about not it? Manufactured. It's not manufactured. It's not like Real Housewives. No, it's not manufactured. <laughs> I, I know for a fact it's not manufactured. Do I follow it? I don't really uh, watch that often, but I do speak to Joy almost every day. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh yeah. So you get the inside the inside I know what's scoop. Going on. Yeah, yeah. Her uh, her her blowups with with Meghan McCain have really were really uh, became a thing before she finally uh, left the show. They were fun to watch, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were That's fun to watch. That's good TV. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they they realized that that was a uh, that that was good TV, even if it was even if there was some reality uh, behind yeah. it. Yeah. Well, they they just had differences of opinion. Let's. Put I it guess that so. Way. Yeah. <laughs> the other old clip that I just watched uh, was your uh, Friars Club roast of Donald Trump from 2004, which is a, a special a special thing. Well, you know, they say you only roast the ones you love. I add or are indifferent to. At that time, I you know they it was like a last minute thing. Somebody backed out and they asked me to fill in, and um, to me, he was just some you know like television guy. He wasn't, who knew that he was going to end up being so lethal? Yeah. You didn't know you were roasting a future president either. Correct. And I would never roast him now because I would never give him that attention. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you, you immediately go after him as sort of a, a horrible womanizing, uh, you know, asshole. Well, he was, the, he was yeah. easy to roast. You know, I think my opening line was, was about his hair. It was a luncheon. I said, Donald, did you enjoy your lunch? I hear your hair ordered the salmon. <laughs> <laughs> We met once, but you won't remember because you weren't trying to sleep with me. And, you know, that's because I'm not your type. It's okay because, you know, I'm smart, my tits are real, and I speak English. <laughs> I'm not attracted. You're not my type. It's not that I'm not attracted to you. Well, I'm not, but you're not my type because it's like the ego thing. Because I, I don't like to go out with a guy who calls out his own name when he's coming. You, you know what I mean? And the, the handshaking bother, you know that Donald doesn't like to shake hands. And it's not because he's germaphobic. It's just that he jerks off so much that he considers anything else cheating. <laughs> and you, what's with the ooze? It's a fucking roast, okay? I love that line. But then you really go after him for, uh, for the way he treats women, which I thought was interesting that even then, you know, it was sort of a, a well-known... It was a, of course it was. Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> How did that man? Oh, I, I, I don't even like to talk about him or I mention know. his name or I give know. him any energy whatsoever. Yeah. Um. Did, but do you think, was he able to, did you perceive that he was able to laugh at himself then? Because I mean, he really can't well, anymore. You know, it's, yeah. And what's interesting is, yes, I was actually, I remember that day quite well. And I was surprised that he was gracious and he was quite gracious. Um, however, it was all about him. So that was that other, you know, narcissistic aspect. I think he loved that it was all about him, positive or negative. But what's interesting is I personally think the reason he ran for president in the first place was because of a roast. What Obama did to him at the uh, Washington Correspondents' Dinner, I think that it all started in that moment that he humiliated him. And that's when he want, that's when he that's started with all, all that about. other crap. I think so. It all started because of a comedy bit. Isn't that crazy? And look what happened. <laughs> and we're not we're not we're not free yet. The other 
show that your part that you've done that I really wanted to talk about because I love it so much is uh, Broad City, Broad City, which is a, yeah. is a favorite of of mine. Um, and uh, and you're so fantastic on that show. Um, how did you end up uh, playing Alana Glazer's mother? Uh, after the first season. I got a call from my manager saying, telling me there were these Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson wanted to take me to dinner. I had no idea who they were. Um, and I think that the, I think the show hadn't aired yet, actually. Oh, okay. The first season hadn't aired yet. So I looked up their webisodes, which is, as you know, is how they started. They were they were two uh, upright citizens brigade uh, people and they couldn't get arrested. So they started as I think is so fantastic, they started this web series yeah, that they, they, just did they it produced. Themselves, yeah. and they did it themselves. And then it got picked up and uh, was put on County Central. So I watched the web series and I was like, oh, these girls are really funny. <laughs> I thought it was funny. And then we, I went to dinner with them and they were taking me to dinner to talk to me about playing Alana's mother. They wanted me to play Alana's mother. And I just fell in love with them. I'm still very close with them. I just fell in love with them and, and just thought they were so smart and just, and that was that. I mean, I, I just, and, and working with the, the first, the first one I did was uh, knockoffs, which I still think is one yeah, of the best. The, the bags. And, yeah. The bags. And that was written by Paul Downs and it was directed by Lucia and yellow who then went on to do hacks, yeah, you know, so, so brilliantly. Yeah. yeah. And they were just, it was just such a great group of people to work with and, I, I was thrilled to be on that show. Just thrilled. Abby, sweetheart, let me know if you want me to get your bag when I go to Chinatown later, okay? I love bags. You guys enjoy the day together. I'm actually late for my non-date hangout, you know. Don't forget to wear a condom, Abby. Alana, I, one time I don't wear a condom. And wow. you tell your, that's just how she says goodbye to people. Yeah, I care. Okay. All right, well, have fun. Ugh. Will you look at that gorgeous tush? Oh my God, it's perfection. Talking about my butt? Yes. Yeah, it's so that episode where you, yeah, you go to Chinatown to buy the bags and you're... Oh, that's an example of like, I guess I got to learn Chinese now. I mean, they throw things at you and it's like, and what was really funny about that was Chinese is, it's not like learning if I had to do Spanish or something. I mean, Chinese is like a whole other, there was an interpreter there. And then there was, the, I think the location manager and one was Cantonese and one was Mandarin. And they kept on telling me different, different things because oh, it's like a different language. And finally, I was just like, put an IFB in my ear. I cannot figure yeah, this just repeat it. A lot, so much is inflection. Like you say, ah, or ah, you know, it's, it's not so, um, I, whatever I whatever I ended up saying, I, I know was completely wrong, but I don't think it really mattered. But yeah, but the, the, for the joke to work, it has to really sound like you know what you're doing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I faked it pretty well. You faked it pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, you, you fooled me. Um, yeah, that that show is so so good. Um, so what I want to do now is our our segment called the first laugh, and I'm going to ask you about a bunch of uh, firsts in your in your life and career. Okay. Hit me. All right. So I want to start. I want to go all the way back to, do you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that really made you laugh hard as a kid? Yeah, I, it was, I was five years old. It was 1960 and it was Mel Brooks and Carl Ryan, a 2000 year old man album. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was it? I mean, it about I probably that, laughed but, yeah. at cartoons and stuff before that, but I don't remember. What was it about the, uh, the, that, that really connected with you? Well, thinking about it, I mean, I could listen to it now and it's still so funny. It was funny, but at five, I couldn't possibly have understood half the material. I didn't know who Joan of Arc was. I, you know, <laughs> I couldn't have understood. But I think there was, it was something in the rhythm of it. It was musical to me. It was something in the rhythm and the music of it that, that touched my funny bone, that, that I, 
and, and also you hear people laughing, you know, you hear the audience laughing. So laughter is so contagious, but I, I, I know it was the rhythm of it because I could, my father used to do things like, um, I would stand on the kitchen table and I would do both Carl and Mel parts and I would do the whole album, you know, perform it for my family from beginning to end. And my, and I had it down perfectly. My father would say a line from it, but he would have it wrong. Like he would take a word out or add a word or something. And the rhythm was off and it was like nails on a blackboard to me. Like he was singing flat, you know? So there's something in the musicality of it. People talk about, can you teach people to be funny? The timing and the rhythm, you either have that or you don't. I, I don't think that could be taught. You could learn how to write a joke, but that kind of rhythm, you, you either have it or you don't. Yeah. That kind of connects to my next question, which is uh, the first time that you knew you were funny. You know, I remember very young, you know, maybe three or four. My grandmother was really funny and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother and maybe three. I don't, I don't remember exactly when, you know, those memories of eight, but I remember somehow being aware of being funny, of making people laugh and what that did for me in the world. That when you made people laugh, they, they liked you. They responded to you in a positive way. You got what you needed from them in some sense. Cause you know, I had a very contentious relationship with my mother. My mother was a, a real depressive. That was another thing. We, I you know so many comedians, female comedians that had depressed mothers. I think we were all trying to make our mothers laugh all the time was another aspect. But I saw the response that I got being funny and it was a positive thing. So it became a survival mechanism for me. What do you remember about the very first time you performed stand-up on a stage in front of people? I remember that I did something that I have never done since, which is I had a glass of wine before I went on because <laughs> I was such a nervous wreck. And I was lying, I was I was on my floor in my apartment rocking back and forth. <laughs> I was so, and I, I did, I think I had like a five minute spot and I did it in like two minutes. I, I did it so quickly and my mouth was so dry and that's all I remember. <laughs> yeah. Did you get any laughs? Yes, I did get laughs. Well, that's pretty good then. <laughs> A lot of people get laughs the first time, and then they think they, they're all that. And then they go up the second time. It's like, uh, different, I hear different that over and over now. again. The first time, the second time does not go like as well as the first time. Exactly. Um, do you remember the first joke that you told or bit that you had that really worked on an audience that you could keep going back to that you, you felt really good about? Well, when I first started, I used to just, I didn't speak in my own voice. I used to just do these characters and they were imitations of people, you know, my grandmother and my mother and, and just people in that I knew. So those all worked. and, And I did that for several months until I learned how to actually speak. It was Joy that actually helped me with that because when I first saw Joy on stage, this was in 1983, um, when I first saw her on stage, it was like a, it was a realization that, oh, I see what she's doing. She's just being herself. She's the most herself person on stage that I've ever seen. She's just being herself like the way I am around the kitchen table talking to my girlfriends is, and that's what I have to do. So that's when I, then I had to develop that. It's not easy to be yourself. No. Well, easier to easier to hide behind a character, right? Yeah. So I know you made in in 1988. You were in two films, uh, Crocodile Dundee Two and Punchline, were sort of like your your uh, co film debuts. Do you have a Do you have a story from from either or both of those that that sticks out in your memory from from filming those? Uh, Crocodile Dundee Two, not much because that was just one day of shooting. Um, 
but but punchline i was i was in it but i was also hired to be sally field's coach oh yeah i was her comedy coach so i worked on that for a good three months i they i was in la it was my first time in a studio it was like i was in hollywood all of a sudden you know and i was at sally field's house and you know i, I remember picking up her oscar and feeling like all about eve <laughs> and uh um but she would not I would write material for her and work with these other comedy writers writing material for her. But, you know, comedy material, you have to try out on an audience. And she wouldn't go out and go into clubs for, I mean, I don't blame her. I mean, yeah. it's, she it's a Sally really, Field, Tom, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hanks did at the time. He was playing comic also. So Tom and I would go out to clubs and I would try the material out. Yeah. And see how, and then, and, and bring see it back how to it her. worked and then bring it back to her. It was a real learning experience. I saw how a movie was made. I, you know, I was, I was there every day. I was on set every day. So that was a real privilege in a way. How did Tom Hanks do in the clubs? Oh, he's funny. <laughs> he did well. He, he knows how to, he knows how to deliver. Yeah. She was probably more famous than he was at that time. Maybe that's why yes, he, was, absolutely. he felt more that comfortable was very doing beginning it. Of, yeah. That was the very beginning of his, his career. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, and then I believe you made your, your late night TV debut on the tonight show with Johnny Carson in 1989. Um, but you were on, you were on panel. You didn't do stand up, which I thought was interesting. Did you, did you want to do stand up on the show? And they, and no, you ended up... my stand up never lent itself to those kinds of, uh, five minute spots. I, it just was, I was more of a storyteller and characters and improvising. So you know, those spots, you had to have a tight you know, you had, that was set up punch time and that was never my forte. So no, I, I didn't ever want to do stand up on any of those shows. Um, I was in a TV series at the time called baby boom. It was an NBC series. So they, they got me on because it was an NBC show and, um, it did not go well at all. The spot. No, I think Johnny did not know that I was a comic. He thought I was just like some young NBC ingenue coming on the show and I was a little raunchy and a little dirty and he wasn't expecting it. And we didn't get, we didn't have a rapport. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't feel great about it after, uh, no, after I felt it horrible about it. Oh. And that was the most nervous I've ever been in my life. I can imagine. I, I mean, show. yeah, that must've been, I mean, it's a really big deal for anyone to go on, on that show and, and for a comedian, well, especially growing up the way that I grew up with that, that was it. It's, it's different now. You know, I mean, that was it. It was the tonight show. Yeah, there was, was nothing else. else. Yeah. <laughs> Merv Griffin, you know, there was nothing else. Um, I one other thing I learned about you that I didn't know was you did you were a uh, correspondent briefly on the Daily Show at the very beginning? You know, apparently I was and I have no memory. Of it. <laughs> it's on your it's on but your yeah, resume. I was like if I think about it, yeah, I was. But I don't remember it. This was pre-John Stewart, I think. No, I think it was John. Oh, it was with John? I think so. <laughs> we'll never I, know. I don't remember. I really don't remember. That's it's so been funny. a long career. We're uh, going back to to Curb. What do you remember the very first scene that you shot on Curb? Um, and I do. And, yeah, and what and how how it went and what what it was like. It was really a nothing scene. I was I was there. What I do remember is I, I something else was going on, but it was really just more introducing Jeff's wife Susie. But there was no real scene for me. But we were talking about Sammy. Uh, and Jeff's parents were there, you know, Louis Nye and Mina Culp, both brilliant. Uh, I don't know if Mina's still alive. Louie died. Um, but Sammy was at that time a boy. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the, in the next season, he became a girl because then they, you know, because of the doll. 
Yeah, du- that's funny. Larry had written the dump. Yeah, I <laughs> so remember. What, I remember that very well. So what? So the, the, there wasn't much to the scene, though, or, or do you no, it wasn't much. It was. I didn't have much. My main thing in in that season was what I referred to before was the wire when I'm yes. when fresh air yes, for cut, yes, yes, yes. fresh air fun kid robs us. <laughs> um, and I, I kn- remember that very well too. Larry Charles was directing that. Uh, I remember it very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you, you often get uh, recognized on the street by fans of curb who want to, who want uh, you to, you know, scream obscenities at them. Yes. Uh, do you have a particularly memorable uh, uh, interaction with a fan that, that stands out in your, in your memory? Uh no, because they're all pretty much the same. But I do remember probably the most inappropriate time somebody asked me to do that was at my mother-in-law's wake. <laughs> someone you knew, or just, 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 just no, no one I no. knew. And they just they what, what did they, just what, did they what did they say to you? Oh, could you yell at me and curse at me? I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they think that was a that was a good place to ask? Be- uh, exactly. Why? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that could be a storyline in Curb. It could be. Yeah, it probably was. <laughs> Maybe it will be. Um, and then uh, finally, what I, I like to do is ask comedians to uh, to shout out other comedy or comedians that really make them laugh. Um, so what's the last uh, piece of comedy or comedian or something that that's really making you laugh right now? Well, I don't watch much comedy. You know, I really don't. Um, so, I mean, the people that make me laugh are, are usually the things that really make me laugh are usually real life things, stuff that happens in life. But I mean, I have favorite, uh, there, there's certain comedians that can just crack Gilbert Gottfried, for example, will make me laugh no matter what. We'll just look at each other and I'll just break up. Larry really, and I, I mean, it sounds like so disingenuous for me to say, Larry really makes well, me laugh. So really I, makes I me laugh. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hate this question because I know I'm going to leave out people that I think are really funny and that are friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, who really makes me laugh? I mean, there's so many funny people out there that really make me laugh. Uh, you know, Alana and Abby really make me laugh. Joy Joy makes me laugh every day. But that's just in real life, not, you know, not stand up. I'm having dinner with my friend Mario Cantone next week. He really makes me laugh. So many people make me laugh. Well, I've been trying to get uh, Joy on this podcast for a while, and I have I've not been successful. So maybe you can uh, put it put in a good word for me. I will put in a good word, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm so glad that we got to do this, and uh, and thank you so much for coming on. And I'm just I'm such a huge fan of you and of Curb, and um, this was this was really a lot of fun. Thanks. So thank you. And by the way, how great last night's episode was. They're just getting better and better. Yeah, I can't we wait. We have some. We have some episodes seven, eight, nine, and ten are off the charts. Fantastic! I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. All right, thanks. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Just a huge thank you to Susie Essman for joining me on this week's show. You can watch new episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm every Sunday night at 10:30 p.m. on HBO, and stream all 11 seasons on HBO Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.